This uh, spectacle was seven years, $40 million in the making, and boy, did it show. You know, it was interesting. Four years ago, we got a sample of Chinese synchronicity on a jaw-dropping scale. Tonight, it was all about British intelligence, uh, erudition, their cultural contributions from this uh, island nation over the centuries here. It began with a lush island of villages transformed by a bit of Kenneth Branagh read Shakespeare and industrial revolution. Rivers of molten steel form rings, Olympic rings that rise and spark in the London night. And in a sweeping rambling narrative, Danny Boyle gave tributes to everything from James Bond and the Queen to Harry Potter and the national healthcare system, even Mr. Bean and the inventor of the internet. And then hours after the history lesson began, the former British colony known as America entered powerful and beaming and watched as the moving cauldron sculpture was lit by young athletes, nominated by British medalists past, legends literally passing the torch to a new generation. There is no space, there is no time, there is no past or future, there is only now. And in fact, there is only foreverness, timelessness. The mystery of identity is the greatest mystery of all because you're now seeing the evidence that the galaxy has programmed us to go through an incremental stage of evolution at this time. A spontaneous shift, almost like a flashbulb going off from a photographer. And after that flashbulb goes off and you open up your eyes and you look around, it's a whole new world. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning into Canary Cry Radio this week. Uh, first, we'd like to start with, uh, you know, we have uh, a number of listeners over in London, England that we'd like to give a shout out to. So if you're listening from uh, across the pond over there, uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, I'd say hello to our London listeners because, or our England listeners, because uh, we're going to talk about a pretty hot topic right now, which is the London 2012 Olympics and the specifically the opening ceremony, which was, uh, I mean, we all expected to be um, quite a spectacle. And I would say that it was probably the most English thing that I've ever seen, which was entertaining, but at the same time, there were some pretty spooky parts of it. Yeah, most definitely. And, and uh, you know, most of us that have eyes to see, we definitely were anticipating to see some of the occult symbolism, the Illuminati stuff, straight up Luciferian stuff. And there was certainly a lot of that going on. And so, um, you know, we, we're going to look into some of it and take it with a grain of salt. Maybe it was intended, maybe it wasn't, but at the very least, um, it's interesting to at least bring up and some of it's undeniable, I think. Um, but, but I, I believe there was an overall, uh, sort of vibe that they wanted to send and we'll get to that when we get there at the end. But, um, do you want to... Yeah, right. And I I was just going to say, I think it's good to preface with, I mean, there's a lot of people talking about um, the ceremony and there's a lot of people sort of breaking it down and going through every detail. And while a lot of it is pretty undeniable, um, I think it's pretty easy to stretch for a lot of things too. So we're going to try to stick with some things that, um, you know, we're going to try not to have to stretch so far because I think it's important that we um you know that we stick with the facts and stick with you know we, we shouldn't have to try to uh justify something that might not be there but or sensationalize exactly. something that's not there yeah exactly all right so we'll just start going through it from the very beginning and um we'll post a video that has some pictures there are some pretty st- strict uh, copyright um things going on with the Olympics. And so we're unable to find a uh, video that, that has the whole opening ceremony um, for you guys to check out. Maybe one uh, exists. If somebody can find it, let us know. But we'll, we'll post a video that has um, pictures of the whole thing. So you can watch that and sort of get, a, get an idea for what we're looking at. If you were one of the few people who probably weren't watching it um, as it happened. So 
Uh, yeah, Gons, why don't you start us off there? Uh, let's see, where to begin, where to begin. Well, we talked about the stadium. Obviously, the um, pyramid, well, it's a triangle-shaped, the lights up there. Uh, right. We've discussed that before, and in the now 14, there's, right. there's 14 lights, which, you know, if some of the esoteric stuff that that has been spoken about, about, you know, the pyramid and the eye of Horus and Osiris and all this stuff is true then there is some sort of significance to the fact that there are actually 14 lights up there because 14 is a number of pieces that Osiris was chopped into, uh, of which, you know, 13 were found. And, uh, you know, the whole idea of that, you know, male phallic piece that was not found, that was, um, you know, constructed by Isis, the the wife there. And uh, she was able to conceive Horus, uh, the son, which, you know, Isis went on to marry the son Horus, which is, you know, kind of weird, but anyway, uh, so, right. and, and I think I, I want to mention this. I, we talk about the, the pyramids, the triangles, um, with the, the capstone illuminated that are, uh, you know, the lights to light up the stadium, which right. is just heavily symbolized or uh, is just a very heavy symbolism of, um, the occult and, and, and all the mystic things around that. But also in between those lights, those 14 lights, there are actual other, other pyramids that I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely structures that are, um, I guess sort of a tetrahedral shape, uh, you know, the basic, um, three dimensional shape, which is a tetrahedron. Uh, but yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed is, as I was watching the opening ceremony throughout was just kind of the eerie nature of like seeing those lights. If they had a shot where they're, you know, whatever right. the actors and stuff are going on and in the background, those lights are just, you know, they're coming down. It was just kind of eerie. Right. And, and I definitely noticed it. So, um, yeah. th- that was definitely, I think that was fairly intentional and uh in making it you know pretty obvious with what they were trying to do absolutely the the you know the eye of course is watching as uh they go through the history of england and you know by extension the world and and uh all of these sort of occult symbols are being observed by the one that they want you know that they are paying tribute to basically right 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 and so um, we're going to actually kind of follow a, a blueprint of this article that's on riseearth.com that we'll uh, link to. It's probably one of the only ones out there that I'm sure if, you've, if you're curious about this topic, I'm sure you've looked at it. Uh, if not, we'll link to it. And basically this guy goes through a pretty detailed account of everything that's going on. Um, but again, again we'll... Yeah, we'll, Again, some of it may be stretching a little bit, but we're going to use it as a blueprint for us to walk through. Yeah, so this guy here starts off and talks about how there's two cities talked about in the Bible, which is uh, Babylon and Jerusalem. And um, he opens up with, uh, let me just read this first little paragraph or at least a couple sentences. Uh, the Olympic ceremony opened with an orchestra playing Nimrod by Enigma Variations. Um King Nimrod was the world's first dictator, and as builder of the Tower of Babel, he was considered to be the first and most excellent master of the Freemason fraternity. The original world order can be traced back to Babylon, where King Nimrod was rebellious and resentful of God Yahweh. Uh, He had a vision of heading a single global government to control the economic, political, and religious issues throughout the world. And we've talked about this a little bit um, before, especially when we spoke to Rob Skiba. Right. But... uh, yeah, all of the world religions comes from Babylon or Babel, the Tower of Babel that was headed by Nimrod, as the first um, type of Antichrist. And, uh, you know, I, I, it is very interesting that they would play a song um, called Nimrod. <laughs> that, right. uh, you know, it's pretty out. I think that's pretty obvious as an homage to this ancient king that they're trying to either resurrect physically or spiritually. Um and so, you know, we know that that's been kind of the goal for the New World Order all along. We know that the a lot of the occult, the esoteric world sees the uh, the concept of the the story of the Bible, of the Garden of Eden and all that flipped, right? Uh, Bill Cooper has, you know, famously talked about how um, 
you know, Adam and Eve were prisoners in the Garden of Eden, that Yahweh God was the evil God, uh, that, um, you know, Lucifer, through his agent Satan, freed Adam and Eve from the Garden uh, with the gift of intellect and knowledge. And um, so that's the twisting, and that's what's taught in all these secret societies. And that's the foundation of the mystery religions, which is the underpinning uh, spirituality that is that ties together a lot of religion, religions, I think, around the world, uh, but especially the secret societies and what they teach. And, um, uh, you know, all the secret societies are just different flavors of that same thing. And uh, it's just very interesting that they would, uh, you know, <laughs> play a song called Nimrod. I mean, it's just, you know, right, for those right. to, who know or in the know, so to speak, is pretty obvious. Exactly. And it's not an arbitrary thing. It's definitely something that's uh, meant to send a message to anybody who is in the know. And that's exactly uh, how they operate. And we've said it before, uh, but just to reiterate, um, everything that they do in a public setting has two meanings to it. That's a, it's sort of this double speak that, that you get used to as a member of the Illuminati or any sort of um, organization like that. And it's also something you get used to if you spend enough time um, studying them because that's how they like to communicate. So opening up with this song called Nimrod is, uh, is a, a very heavy um, foundation to start this on. Now, going on to the next song that they play um, just even serves, uh, you know, more to the purpose of, you know, sending a message um, for whatever that maybe why don't you tell us about the next song guns um the next song at least according to this article right uh was um a song named jerusalem and it was sung by uh, a young boy a great voice i i was very impressed with his voice um and um here are the lyrics to what the children's choir were singing and this is quoted here again in this article and um, he quotes, And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green, mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God of England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon her clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among the dark satanic mills? Wow. And yeah, so I, I remember actually hearing that and thinking, whoa, yeah, they're being very... <laughs> <laughs> They're not being discreet about any of this stuff. Right. Um, yeah. So, and then it shows um, some people in, a, in a, you know, these old time traditional kind of top hat suits type thing. Yeah. It was actually pretty entertaining. It was, it was just because that's sort of the stereotypical way, I, at least in my <laughs> circle here in the United States, when we think of England, just because of Hollywood and all the movies and things, when you think of England, you think of top hats and mutton chops and things like that. And it was and, actually kind of entertaining to see. And tea. And tea, yeah, tea. Yeah. exactly. And you see these very refined Englishmen come out with their um, <laughs> sort of top hats and things like that. So yeah, and so at the top of this little hill that looks like, which is kind of the central uh, thing that everything comes back to, is this tree pops out. I believe, right? Is that is that what happened? Well, okay. So uh, this whole time, we're we're sort of looking upon this lush green. Um, pastor, pastoral setting and there's people with donkeys and sort of this um, you know farmland type thing this sort of utopia and and uh, over in the corner there's this hill that's sort of shaped like a ziggurat in in the way that it has these sort of different levels which is in itself a sort of homage to Nimrod again um, being the first builder of ziggurats being a place, you know, for him as the God King to be, you know, placed upon to sort of rule over his, uh, you know, his folks. Um, but on top of this is a tree, you know, and I'm sure to those who are not thinking about it, it's just sort of either a nice looking tree or it's just there to fit in with the landscape or maybe the tree of life or something. And and that's something that we hear explained by people outside of the know is that it's the tree of life. Yeah. Because after this 
gentleman comes out and sort of re- recites this passage. So this this gentleman who seems to serve as um, I would say a main character in this in the whole ceremony, we sort of follow him around as this as this whole first part um, is going through, and. Uh, he recites this passage from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, it, I believe it's the one uh, that starts with, Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises. And it's sort of this uh, line spoken by a sort of creature, half creature, half man character. Um, I believe his name is Caliban or something like that. And it's interesting because this creature is. Um, is sort of, you know, again, to somebody in the know, he's sort of representative of a Nephilim because, like I said, he is half man, half beast sort of creature and sort of rings um, to, you know, that symbolism where you have a Nephilim standing up and reciting to everyone in the land, um, basically talking about uh, why England is so great, <laughs> which again, they did a good job of making, uh, the, the whole ceremony pretty, uh, um, stereotypically English, which is entertaining. But anyways, so the Tempest, uh, is, is this book about Um, Well, I'll just read this explanation that this guy has here on the article. In the Tempest, tempest, travelers arrive at an island ruled by Prospero, the magus who has mastery over all nature. Prospero's farewell to his art in the play is the bard's farewell to his work. Uh, In New Atlantis, the travelers arrive at an island ruled by a society called Solomon's House. So you can see the sort of um, similarities before uh, between the uh, occult writings of Francis Bacon and uh, The Tempest written by Shakespeare. So anyways, that happens. And then after he recites this, a, a very interesting and sort of, it's fun to watch happen, but at the same time, it kind of gives you an eerie feeling. So at the top of this ziggurat, there's a tree. Um and the tree sort of lifts out of the ground and you see the roots coming out of the ground. And then there's this sort of light shining up, this brilliant light shining from the hole that the tree left. And people just start crawling out of this hole, which is just, you know, already sort of a bizarre sight and sort of lends itself to the um, double speak sort of uh, symbolism of it being the... the um, tree of life right yeah and then when they walk out uh you know they're kind of in that old english garb and um as they descend from the tree uh you know it's kind of like them being you know being freed from the garden you know again the the flipped version of the garden of eden story that a lot of these uh secret societies hold to and as they descend um you know, they're down there. I think they're like dancing around and whatnot. And the tree sort of being a likened now um, to, you know, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. Right, right, right. Uh, and so once they come down and they're, you know, they're dancing around and they're, it's nice and everything. And, and it, uh, it transfers fairly quickly into the uh, industrial revolution. And that's what, the eeriest things to watch. These people start, they come out of the garden or out of the tree of life or out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they start peeling back the sod from the ground, right? The grass and sort of carrying away this sort of, uh, utopia of grassy farmland. And it sort of starts to take, I mean, they sort of transform it into this sort of hellish nightmare. Uh, of the industrial revolution. Yeah. And these giant pillars come out, which uh, it's not exactly in the shape of an obelisk, but that's what it kind of reminded me of. They were, um, they were smokestacks from the industrial revolution. And seven of these things come rising out of the ground in sort of this ominous fashion. And they sort of um, 
they're pretty large. They're like a hundred feet tall or something like that. And what I found was interesting and sort of strange was, um, they follow the cameras sort of follow around this group of what looks like, you know, English, um, businessmen or nobles, or, you know, they're, they're sort of in nicer clothes than the rest of these workers who sprung out of the ground, but they go to each of these pillars that rise out of the ground. And they're sort of doing this like rising motion with their hands, almost like beckoning it out of the ground. And it's almost a kind of akin to, I mean, it, it, there's definitely this worshipful air going about um, as this is happening. Yeah, and I also recall even some of the announcers um, alluding to, you know, uh, after the, I think after the ceremony, as they were kind of looking back at the at the various stages, they were saying, oh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was a, kind of a reflection of the era of, of Satanism taking over the land. And, you know, it's very accurate to the English history and stuff like that. But I thought it was very strange that a, a major news outlet would even say that. And I think this was actually the British uh, feed that, that was talking about that. But, um, yeah, it was just very dark, eerie, a lot of smoke, um, y- you know, I, I, I don't remember. I got to watch again with all the little details because I know... I recall watching it and seeing there's, I mean, there's so much going on because there's hundreds of people or right. hundreds of actors, you know, each doing uh, kind of their own little thing, um, which is another thing that really we should point out just as, just to interject is that although this is a recreation, it's an act, um, these esoteric guys, they believe that there's something going on. There, there's, oh, even though yeah. it's it's a recreation, they know that it's, there's some, or at least they believe that there's some spiritual significance to this. Correct. While they're acting this out, there it is. It is a ceremony. Yeah, it is a ritual happening currently in the present time that is happening for all to see, which is even that much more um, impactful for them. But this, while this is happening, and there's uh, there's hundreds of volunteers just, or actors doing this, and they're all sort of doing different stuff, and. Um, yeah, so just so just to keep in mind that this isn't just a show to Yeah, uh, and and again, you have the whole world watching or at least, you know, I think it was the count was like over a billion, so like 1 6th or 1 7th of the world watching this thing. That's a that's a good amount of people. Right. Uh and, and and you know, Rust Isdar pointed out and also Revelation Radio News pointed out that um you know, when, especially Russ Dizdar, because he looks really into Satanism, uh, not as, you know, he's not a Satanist. He's actually a, you know, Bible believing, uh, Christian, but he mentioned how one of the satanic holidays, uh, week long ritual holidays started right. on July 20th, which just Correct. happened to be the day that the, uh, Aurora Denver shooter guy massacred 70 people or right. uh, 12 people. And, you know, a bunch of people were hurt. Uh, and the culmination, the last day of the week is July 27th, which happened to fall on the day that this opening ceremony occurred. So right. I, I, I cannot, you know, we can't look past that. It's got to be something to it. Exactly. And what's happening uh, precisely with this satanic ritual is on the day of the shooting happened, that was the beginning of what's called the preparation of sacrifice and the preparation lasts for seven days. And that's what was instigated on the night of the shooting. Now, seven days later, it's um, the night that the sacrifice is actually made. Now, now we have the sacrifice um, at the end of this satanic week long um, celebration or ritual. The seventh day is the opening ceremony of the Olympics. And so you, you got to think and know that while this is happening somewhere in the world, probably in many places happening simultaneously, there are satanic sacrifices of human beings happening at this time. Yeah. Which is, it's a very scary thought, but I I think this more than just the ceremony, this is, you know, this is the opening up of portals of uh, opening up gateways to the other side, you know, having the other side manifest, and that's why it's important, I think, for us to be talking about this, because to the rest, to a lot of people in the world, it was just, oh, it was a great, you know, opening ceremony. It was a great, uh, you know, festivities and all this stuff. But, uh, you know, 
even if there's nothing truly going on, uh, we got to know that the people that run the world believe that there is a, a major spiritual significance to all of this. Um, but let's, let's move on a little bit. This is kind of where it gets a little bit strange. So after the industrial revolution happens, um, it gets into the part of, uh, uh, they have a bunch of kids, um, on hospital beds. On hospital beds with these glowing blankets, which actually it looks really pretty, I thought. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of nice. But, um, yeah, and they sort of start this, uh, you know, they, they say it's a, a tribute to the national health system um, for England. And that's sort of what the whole, why there are children in beds, you know, for what, that, that's their explanation. Right, right. So uh, what's interesting, though, is, again, it's, it's, you know, it's nice and it's fluffy and, you know, oh, look at these kids and they're, they're so, and, you know, part of me made me feel sick that these kids are in this thing. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, not knowing that what they're being involved in. Uh, But as they go to sleep, uh, they focus in on one girl and this girl is underneath the sheets and she's got a flashlight and she's got got this book out and um, none other than J.K. Rowling, who's the one that wrote the Harry Potter uh, series, who, you know, we've heard stories about how she, uh, I think she was on a train or something and she just had like the entire story like downloaded to her brain. You know, she just had this moment of inspiration about the entire Harry Potter series and um, again, that, you know, who knows what that could be if that was a spirit or, or, or something else. Hmm. Um, and you know, people try to shape it, shape it as like, you know, she was having a hard time and she just had a moment of inspiration and this is the human, uh, the power of the human imagination and all this stuff. So, you know, it's, it's celebrated, especially, you know, uh, in, in England, I think, uh, where the story originates. Uh, but so yeah, these, uh, this kid's reading it. J.K. Rowling actually comes out and reads some lines. I'm not exactly sure what the lines were, um, and it doesn't say here, at least in this article. Uh, but yeah, they, 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 she reads these lines, and this is when it gets really kind of strange, because these dark beings, they look like demons. They're basically demons. <laughs> They're basically demons. They start coming out, you know, out of the, uh, the, the, the back room or whatever. They're... They, yeah, they start galloping out on all fours, most of them, and sort of this, it's just, uh, yeah, they did his, a very good job of making it probably the creepiest thing that I've ever seen on public television. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're running around, and they're, you know, all the kids are hiding because they're scared, and, um, you know, I can't remember the exact sequence of what, what occurred, but in essence, uh, you know, it's kind of like a dark moment, and the culmination of this is a hundred foot uh, thing, I guess like an air thing of Voldemort, the right, evil right. character. Well, yeah. After these demons come galloping out, then this sort of just bizarro um, occurrence happens where uh, Disney or no, no, they're not, they're not originally Disney English villains, villains of English literature sort right. of start popping out of different areas. And they're, they're actually really re- kind of creepy. Like captain hook comes out, but he's sort of like this Jack in the box on a spring. And then Cruella Deville sort of pops out of the ground. Um, and it's, you know, she's all creepy. And then, yeah, like you said, then a, uh, well, I say a hundred feet. It's probably like a 45 foot Voldemort. I think it was actually a hundred feet because they, they, the announcers said this is a hundred feet right. tall. So, right. yeah. so a large Voldemort comes just rising out of the ground. And I mean, uh, with the flowing black robes and this hood and his face is all evil and Voldemorty, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and you're just, I mean, again, I get it that it's like they're villains from English literature and they're terrifying. Like, well done. They they are you have come up with some terrifying <laughs> villains, um, but it's just the strangest thing I've ever seen. And you know his his uh, wand even shot out this flame at one right. point where where it does this thing. And yeah, once again, you know the announcers, at least in America, they're like you know, um, yeah, they were giving homage to uh, the English, um, you know, their ability to storytell and their ability to come up with these villains, and and uh, they were talking about how the you know, the English are very proud of this and, and everything else. So, you know, keeping to that theme, um, after this whole creepy affair happens, 
who comes to save the day? An army of Mary Poppins. All right. <laughs> Come descending down from the ceiling. Um, and they sort of defeat all the villains, which, I mean, I'm whether there's any occult symbolism happening here or not, which I'm sure there is, um, it's just, I mean, it was... The, I, I, I want to say that it's creepy and weird, but I mean, if I were to be honest with myself, it might have been one of the most entertaining things that I'd seen in a while. <laughs> well, just, I think that's kind of the goal is to, and again, we'll get to that point, but just to captivate the audience and right. suspend disbelief and all that stuff, all the stuff that uh, they want you to do, um, you know, from a psychological, mental, spiritual standpoint. Right. Uh, but what's interesting was, you know, the, the Mary Poppins, they come down, it's like a, you know, an army of Mary Poppins and they come down, they, you know, release, uh, these kids and their the kids are jumping up and down and the demons are running away and Voldemort, you know, comes crashing down and all this stuff. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, before we move on though, there was one, uh, bed, that was suspended on this rope thing. A lot of, there was a lot of aerial effects going on. So, um, one of the kids that, uh, was on the bed was actually like lifted up and like, you know, flying through the air in front of the giant Voldemort. And I, you know, and I saw that she was actually hooked on, you know, to the bed by a little wire on her ankle. So she, if she falls, she won't actually fall to her death. But I, I just thought to myself, you know, wow, <laughs> this, this, uh, they put this girl in a lot of danger just to make this whole thing happen. But anyway, at the end of the defeating powers of, uh, Mary Poppins, we see a giant baby thing, a star child thing, right. uh, right. appear and, and, uh, and this yeah. was pretty off-putting for a lot of people. Even the announcers here in the U.S. are like, I remember, I mean, granted, if you're watching the Olympics here in the U.S., you might have noticed that the announcers were actually pretty rude. Uh, oh, yeah, they year. were way rude. Yeah. All around, they're pretty rude. I felt kind of embarrassed. I hope uh, none of you English people were listening to them. But this one guy was like, uh, I don't know if that's... Uh, he, he says... Uh, I can't tell if it's creepy or cute. Yeah, and then exactly. The, and then the co-announcer was a co-announcer was like, "Don't say that." You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's obviously a culturally insensitive thing to do because I'm sure a lot of work went into that. But yeah, at the same time, that's I mean, that's the question we are all asking ourselves. Is, I think it was, it was Matt Matt Lauer. I think is his name, the guy that was <laughs> announcing, and then I can't remember the the female co-announcer. Right, she's pretty well, famous as well. But you know, they're just talking heads, so they just talk about. They, they say what's written on the paper and then when they go off of it, they're insensitive. Um, so, uh, okay. So let's, let's move on. Right. Um, let's see after the big baby thing, what happens after that? Well, now, um, again, the, uh, just to describe the big baby thing, I mean, is it was giant baby, um, but it had no body and it kind of had this blanket over where its body should be. And I mean, to me, it was sort of reminiscent of, and, and the, and it's gray. It's sort of yeah. this gray, like strange. I mean, it really gave off the, the idea of like this, this baby's not alive. Like it, that's, that's part of the creepiness that it was for me. And so I'm, I mean, I'm not going to place any real authority in my interpretations of this, but to me, it sort of was akin to um, like a child sacrifice or something like that, and which may or may not be the case, but yeah. that's a sort of feeling that it gave me. Yeah. I got a little different vibe. Actually. I, I felt like this was, um, you know, Voldemort, all the evil goes down and then this baby's born. Right. Right. Uh, it kind of reminded me of like, you know, this, uh, I, I think it was alluding to quite possibly. And again, you know, same as Basil, don't, don't put any stock into this. This is just speculation on our part, but, uh, the idea of a child being born, a maybe a savior child, maybe a child that comes out of the chaos and evil, um, who is born, right? And and you know, it quite possibly could represent an antichrist figure. Like, okay, our antichrist is here now, and right. he's he's going to appear um, on the outskirts of evil and tribulation and, and whatever. 
So that, that's the kind of vibe I got. But, you know, again, it's not like the nice, it's not the nicest looking baby. It's kind of like this. Yeah, I got to be honest. It is kind of a creepy looking baby. So, right. Well, the interesting part about it is, I mean, when you're looking at it in the context of, you know, say, uh, an, uh, an Illuminati member trying to communicate something and they like to use this double speak because it doesn't allow for um, too much questioning. And you would look at this baby and what is the normal person supposed to think? And that's the weird part is there's no there's no objective message being sent there. That's true. Yeah. The normal person is going to see it and say, oh, I mean, yeah, baby. Right. Yeah. Every, everybody <laughs> is confused at this point. And so that's what makes me wonder, like, maybe this was just a failed, you know, double speak attempt. And there's really some some quite blatant um, something happening there. Yeah, but. some dark stuff going on. Right. Um, yeah, after that, what happens after that? I mean, we're not, I don't think we're necessarily going, we don't have to necessarily go chronologically. We could just point out some of the other things. Uh, uh, right, and, and I'd like to point out again, like like you said in your article, um, if you haven't checked it out, go to facelikethesun.com and check out Gonz's article um, that he did on the opening ceremony and i think one of the biggest things about it is that it's not the individual symbolism that was the biggest um i guess sort of signal or something to those of us who are in the know but it was just sort of the the whole context of the entire ceremony yeah, I, I in my article, what I basically address is that because, you know, I think a lot of people are talking about like, oh, what did this mean? Oh, what did that mean? And, you know, we, we obviously we did a little bit of that here. But uh, the punchline to me was the actual fact that, um, number one, a lot of people in the world are watching this. And so they're, you know, whether they know it or not, they're being indoctrinated into this kind of thing. And I think there was a lot of people coming out saying, oh, don't watch it. It's going to be pagan, blah, blah, blah. And partially, yes, I agree. The other part of me said, no, we're going to watch with discerning eyes. You know, we're watching because we want to do what Ephesians 5.11 says, you know, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And again, can't expose what you don't know. So uh, that's kind of where I was coming from. But yeah, again, not the symbolism of each item, but more so of, um, I, I think the actual part that I think people, or, or at least these occultists and luminous, really wanted to emphasize was after all these acts. And it was actually the Walk of Nations, because um, the Walk of Nations represents more than just, you know, celebrating these athletes. And on the surface, yes, it's celebrating these athletes and their accomplishment and whatnot and how they get to represent their country in a, in a world event and a world stage and stuff like that. But a deeper emotional tug that happens is this idea that look we're getting along here these you know because some of these countries have conflicts within each other they've gone to wars and all this stuff but look at us we're coming together in a common cause and we're peacefully representing our own nation and we're doing it together in this um, kind of a utopian setting right and right. As someone, as someone that was an aspiring athlete, there was a point in my, my lifetime where I wanted to go to the Olympics. And I would watch the Olympic Games and I would watch the Walk of Nations and think, man, that's cool. Look at all these nations walking together in peace and they're just, you know, representing their country and they have pride. And you know, it's very emotional. But I think that's exactly what they were going for because this, this system, this uh, world order, this quote-unquote golden age that, that we'll kind of get into in a little bit, um, that is not going to come about unless the world has an emotional reason to, or, or has this kind of uh, spiritual and um, psychological desire to have it. And watching all these nations march, march in, and um, again in peace and unity and harmony, that represents this. Look what we can do. Look, look, look at the peace that we can create in this world. And, and, you know, how we can come together and all this stuff. And ultimately, I think it was represented at the very end at the, uh, when the ziggurat hill, the green hill, with the tree on top, all of these countries, as they walked in, the, the flag bearers would go to the hill and plant their flag into, into the hill. And so at the end of it, the, the hill is covered in all the flags of the nations. And um, 
And at the very top is that tree. It's the tree's back. And again, I think it was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, but it just really pointed to me that this whole uh, imagery was to promote one world government, one world religion, one world, you know, just one world, the single world. We're together. We are one planet. And right. uh, it, in, in, my, in my blog post, I finish off the, the article with Matthew 24, 9, where it says, they shall deliver you up to affliction, and some translations say tribulation, and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And I thought to myself, that's really interesting that he would mention all nations because what that ziggurat thing represented was all nations under the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is, again, the tree of evil, if you will. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, that's really the whole thing with this um, Olympic opening ceremony was to look at it as a whole and see it um, as something that was happening under the gaze of the eye of uh, Apollo or eye of Horus or, you know, um, the 14 illuminated pyramids. And uh, just to name a few other uh, things that happened in the uh, opening ceremony, and I really think that if you haven't seen it, go Go find um, it somewhere. I'm sure maybe online after the whole Olympics, they'll let it slip. But I mean, they had James Bond parachuting out of the helicopter as well as the Queen of England <laughs> parachuting out of a helicopter that was over actually, the ceremony. That was actually kind of funny. I thought that, that was, was pretty, pretty funny. funny. That was good. I mean, it, it really... Uh, it really did a good job of showing uh, some English humor there, which is always fun. Um, and, and yeah, a, a lot of other things happened. Uh, uh, Paul McCartney came out and sang Hey Jude and, and all uh, a few other songs, which this guy in the article goes through some more... Um, speculation. Speculation, some more connections. If you want, check it out in the show notes. Uh, you can read that. I'm, I don't think it's really worth taking the time to do right now, but check it out, see what you think. Now, there was one other thing that I did want to pull attention to, and, and it's this guy does it as well in the article, but in a few shots over the Olympics, you see um, it looks like about eight or nine uh planes flying over the stadium, leaving chemtrails, um, you know, in the sky. It looks like a red, white, and blue, or red, yellow, and blue, or something. Um, chemtrails across the sky over the stadium. And it just, when I saw that, it immediately brought me back to, um, you know, what we've been talking about in the past. I know we mentioned it with Rob Skiba and we mentioned it a few episodes ago and we talked about the Olympics, um, which was, uh, some sort of biological, um, warfare, some, some sort of biological, uh, uh, contagion being spread at the Olympics, um, to sort of create a pandemic later on in the year. And so, Again, I haven't done any scientific analysis on the <laughs> smoke that came out of those planes as they flew by, but I was just wary that, you know, if it was going to happen, that would be one way that it would happen. And um, when I talk about it, it's, it's sort of eerie for me to talk about because it may or may not be the truth that that happened. But if, in fact, that that was part of the agenda and if in fact um it's true that the chemtrails contained some sort of um chemical agent or contagion or something um sinister like that that it i was just watching it there on television yeah um i, I was reading a couple of these comments that that were at the bottom of this article and this one person um says that <laughs> He, basically he's saying if you were British, then you would have understood everything. Uh, so if you're, if you're British and you're listening to this show and there's an actual obvious British uh, idiom for like the, you know, for example, the baby or whatnot, let us know. Um, you know, again, we, we do think that there is some double speak going on. Uh, but let me read this comment here. Cause it's kind of funny or not funny necessarily. But anyway, he, uh, this person says, 
I get sick of all this Illuminati bloodline symbolism crap. It comes up everywhere. Nearly everything that is made or any advert film, event, new building, it's always the same. <laughs> I'm a, uh, I'm total, I think he meant totally, totally bored and sick of it. These people are paranoid and need serious psychological help. While <laughs> I'm inclined to believe that there are some buildings and various other things that have been encoded with certain messages to the fact that these people have taken this beyond anything and now apply it in everything. They see it everywhere they look because they're looking for it. Simple as that. Like you see faces in the clouds. Just because you do does not mean that they're really there. And uh, two things come to mind. One, this person um, has not done their homework because obviously England, you know, has been run behind the scenes by, you know, families like the Rothschilds. And, you know, they've obviously were part of starting the Illuminati. So it's right. not well, crazy to think, you know. Well, that was one other thing, exactly, is that they were sort of the, the um, I mean, they're the first globalists. So, well, not the first globalists, maybe first modern globalists. I mean, uh, there was another thing, and it's a kind of a running joke on the internet that I found, but when you see the parade of nations and you kind of see the queen there watching all the nations come in. I mean, there are a good number of nations that walked in underneath the queen there that she used to rule that, I mean that you, and, and even, uh, you know, in the past generations of the royalty, I mean, uh, England was a global colonizing force and there is a large number of countries who walked into that stadium, even having relatively recently won their independence from Great Britain. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know that, that we mentioned it as a ziggurat. I, I know that it's supposed to represent the Glastonbury. Uh, I'm probably saying that really wrong, but you know, the Glastonbury tour, you know, it's, it's like a little hill that's in right. England. And again, yeah, it does. But at the same time, First off, is that, a, you know, someone, maybe someone can tell us if that's an actual natural phenomenon or if somebody built it in the past or something. Right. I don't know the exact history behind that. Um, but again, they, they definitely use it um, in their own way. They're going to use that symbolism, whatever it is, and kind of piggyback their own esoteric meanings. And, um, you know, because symbols are symbols, you know, you can't really get around some stuff, but they can always twist it a little bit or use it in a certain way to make it something more than what it appears on the surface. So Right. And the fact of the matter is that uh, there's been symbolism happening in the Olympic Games forever. I mean, even in Beijing, there was, there was talk about this. And I mean, the Olympics itself is wrought with Illuminati symbolism, like the torch itself is an Illuminati symbol of the illuminating torch, in which I have no problem believing that that was, um, you know, uh, intentional. Well, yeah, speaking of the torch, the torch itself at the end, the Olympic lighting, uh, was this, it was, it was pretty spectacular if you, you know, if you're just looking at it, but basically, uh, you know, they, they run the, the torch in and, you know, they give it to, it was supposed to be like the symbolism of a new generation. So these young guys all, uh, you know, it was like a, you know, five or six young kids right? get the torch and they run it to this thing that you can't really tell what it is. And basically it's, uh, Oh yeah. It's kind of like a, uh, <laughs> you know what I thought of when I saw it was, have you ever, there's a restaurant out here, um, called, uh, well, I don't remember what it's called, but it's basically kind of a steakhouse and they have this thing called like the, uh, blooming onion, blooming onion, yeah. outback steakhouse, outback yeah. steakhouse. There you go. Yeah. So what they do is basically, uh, get an onion and they, uh, I don't know. How do you describe that? I know it's fried. I don't know. But it, it's basically uh, looks just like that. It has sort of these prongs that are all sticking out, and uh, it kind of like a flower, uh, one of, right. like a lotus flower, like a lotus flower, yeah. exactly. So once once each individual one was lit, it kind of merged. It lifted itself up and merged into the center, and uh, made one big flame. Yeah. And you know, you can we can get into all sorts of speculation on what that means, you know, and. Right. But I mean, it's pretty obvious is the, is the, is the fact of the matter, but it was interesting. And if you're watching it here in the United States, they, they had a shot as this thing was uh, igniting sort of in a circular motion all around the, the, uh, I don't know what, what to call it, sculpture or whatnot. And there was a point where it looked 
like an eyeball, a flaming eye, like looking right at you with the iris and the pupil and everything, you know, I mean, it quickly, uh, it quickly ignited all around fully, but there was a point where this, you're just looking straight down on this eye with this fiery iris. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's, (laughs) you know, Oh, and obviously, you know, there were UFOs and they came in the form of, uh, the Olympic rings and they shot down flames and, (laughs) uh, you know, there was all sorts of stuff. I mean, it really was a huge spectacle uh, to say the least. It, It, probably took a lot of man hours, a lot of planning, a lot right. of, uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, right. Well, well, speaking of UFOs too, there was the, uh, the UFO sighting over <laughs> the Olympics there that had people going and some people are still going and, and, you know, especially since, uh, there was a lot of anticipation of some, I don't know, some sort of UFO disclosure or, uh, you know, visit, um, during the Olympics there. So it had people up in arms, but it turns out, um, and you know, this is not surprising, but it was the, uh, the Goodyear blimp, or I think it was the Goodyear, it was a blimp, um, sort of hovering over that was being illuminated by fireworks. Um, so that was, I mean, who knows? Maybe it was a UFO disguised as the blimp. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of, keep a, a a pulse on this thing, a finger on the pulse on all this stuff, because, you know, it's a hot topic. I know everybody has their opinions on what it is and what, what all the symbolism meant. And we touched on it a little bit. And again, you can speculate till we're blue in the face. And at a certain point, it's like, okay, we get it. There's some symbolism there, but you know, what are we supposed to do with it? So right. uh, if anything, it can be used as maybe a tool to help people see some stuff going on, uh, especially some of the more blatantly obvious stuff. Um, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Don't, don't necessarily, uh, you know, take every word for what we said, especially as, as the translations, because we have no idea if that's what it actually represented or not. Um, but you know, like, like I think for example, the, uh, the the pyramid or triangle shaped lights is just a very obvious thing. I've run it by people that are totally not, you know, conspiracy minded and whatnot. And they're all like, Oh yeah. Even though they don't fully understand, you know, right. Um, actually there was one thing, one more thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, <laughs> we're like talking about how symbols don't matter, but there's another one I want to bring up. At, there was a point where there was like a trail that looked serpent-like and, and, right. was, and it was to this big ring right. and the flame traveled this serpentine shape and it ended up at this ring. And I thought, wow, can you be any more esoteric and occult? Um, so anyway, again, right. yeah, if you get a chance, watch it. Uh, I have it DVR'd, but you know, I can't put it on the internet or they'll come after me. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so yeah, there you go. Uh, that was the Olympics. That, again, check it out. I mean, there's a lot of people talking about it. So um, I almost uh, feel sorry for subjecting you to this l- much talk about it. But if you're interested, all the information's out there for you. Check it out. Uh, we got the link there in the show notes. Um, now, kind of switching gears a little bit, something that came out that I think is, I mean good in a lot of ways and interesting in some other ways is uh bolivia the country of bolivia is um going to be kicking out kicking uh coca-cola out of the country um they will be when when are uh, they doing it uh, oh i'm glad you asked um december 21st of 2012 will be the day that will be the day that coca-cola is no longer allowed in bolivia so uh, the, it's the end of the world. So yeah, so the the prophecies are true. <laughs> uh, the world is ending. Um, no, but but really, it's it's interesting because well, it's good because uh, Coca Cola is an evil company taking over the world. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because the reasons that they do this is um, to sort of. Uh, usher in a, a kind of a golden age to get rid of capitalism and start this new age um, off right. This, I think, one article called it communitarianism, not communism, communitarianism. Mm. And uh, just a note: I mean, they're not the only um, country in the world who has sort of banned um, uh, Coca-Cola from their country. Um, 
I know that uh, Cuba has done so, and uh, Myanmar, and North Korea, and, uh, you know, so there's been a few people who have um, said no to the big red giant, which is great. I mean, good for them. Well, I find, uh, it, I find it interesting that uh, it's, the, it's this guy named David, I'm going to torture his name, Chukuhanka. Uh, he's the Bolivian foreign minister. And he, it's it's funny how he comes out and says, you know, let me quote him. He, they quote him here. And he says that um, the planets will align for the first time in 26,000 years. And this is the end of capitalism, capitalism and the beginning of communitarianism. And it's interesting how he uses a celestial, uh, you know, sig- significance to usher in some kind of quote-unquote political agenda right (laughs) it's just very bizarre i just think it's very strange right well i mean you sort of get an idea of what these this guy's worldview and beliefs are um it says here in the article uh this guy i can't pronounce his name said he is optimistic that the end of the mayan calendar will usher in a new and more progressive era one that will see quote the end of hatred and the beginning of love um, so obviously capitalism is, is, uh, seen as the hatred <laughs> or as sort of a representation of something that's, um, negative in this age. And yeah, it, it sort of shows that he is aligning with this, uh, new age sort of thinking, um, you know, ushering in the age of Aquarius and, uh, and things like that. Yeah. And, uh, so the golden age is something that a lot of new agers have talked about. And one of the people that have really talked about it a lot is this guy named David Wilcock. And I, I used to follow David Wilcock's work. I thought it was very interesting and compelling and stuff. He's got a lot of people following his material. So, you know, he's kind of like the, the American version of David Icke, you know, he's pretty, uh, sensationalizes a lot of stuff and whatnot. But one of the things that he believes, and this is a very common belief in the New Age circles, is that there is, well, first off, they're sort of pantheistic in that they believe God is everywhere. It's like this consciousness is God, and, um, you know, and which leads to ideas like Gaia, which the Earth is a living entity. It's alive. It knows, you know, it has conscious energy. And the sun and planets and stars, they're all conscious entities. So uh, his idea is that the galaxy, again, is a living entity. And every 25,920 years cycles emits this energy burst that comes from the center of the galaxy. And the energy burst hits the Earth or hits the solar system, instantaneously evolving all life in that solar system. Right. And, and it's, you know, he has a lot of quote unquote scientific proof for this as, you know, for example, the planets are getting hotter. It's been getting hotter for the last decade. Therefore we know that this energy burst is coming. Um, right. and you know, other things are, you know, December of 21st, 2012, it's going to be the alignment period. It's when we're going to be able to, uh, jump in our IQ and uh, we're going to be able to levitate and psychically communicate and, and all these things. And right. so this idea of a golden age is very appealing because it plays right into the hands of what everybody wants. And again, tying this back a little bit with the Olympic stuff, that's what they're, that's what the appeal was. You know, the appeal is this, this, this uh, utopian world that we will achieve on our own merits. And uh, you know, I, Again, tying it with the article we're talking about now, it's interesting that governments are actually taking action to try to usher something like this in with, you know, I guess getting rid of Coca-Cola is a big deal. They must they must really have a, a, a capitalistic influence right. from Coca-Cola in Bolivia. Right. And again, I mean, I'll, I'm all for uh, kicking coca-cola out of uh, your country i mean that stuff is basically poison um addictive poison uh that they're you know given youngsters as well as uh everybody i mean there's somebody in australia just uh the other month or so who died 
because she drank like two liters of Coca-Cola every day for a, a large portion of her life. And she died of something like a heart attack or a brain aneurysm or something. And the family tried to sue Coca-Cola, but that didn't work out. Um, but yeah, anyways, I mean, it's, it's not getting Coca-Cola out of the country. That's the, that's the, um, strange part. It's the, you know, we're doing it as a reaction to this golden era that's coming up. And I mean, it's, it's ignorant to say that governments don't make decisions based on um, personal beliefs. I mean, the, the Illuminati beliefs of the United States government and other governments around the world has been directing the history of humanity for uh, quite a long time. And so I find this story more interesting than anything else that, uh, that he is even coming out publicly saying this is the reason. You know what I mean? Right. Because the, the U.S. government would never come out with, you know, Illuminati intentions, of, you know, explaining decisions that they're making. Um, but this guy's very confident when he comes out and he says, you know, we're just getting ready for this new golden era that's coming out. Well, it makes me wonder, too, because you know how in recent years, a lot of countries have released their top secret documents on UFOs. Maybe they know something. Maybe they kind of know that there's some kind of uh, disclosure in the works that is really is going to change the world and something like a corporation or a corporate power like Coca-Cola is going to, you know, quote unquote, slow it down or something. Right. You know, I'm just speculating here, but I mean, it's possible that some of these other nations, even though they might not be just spilling all the beans are kind of trying to say like, Hey, you know, we know something's going to happen and or not, or it can just be a political campaign, you know, using this date as a, as a catapult for their agenda, um, right. which seemingly at, on the surface, again, doesn't seem like it's terribly harmful. Yeah. I mean, I could see it from his point of view. I mean, if there's going to be any beverage on the planet that is halting the evolution of the human race, I would say that it is Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I totally agree. So, yeah, I don't think there's much more to talk about on that. And we're just about out of time. So um, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio. Just a few uh, little announcements here. We are working on a video section of the site. So look forward to that. We are going to be trying to address um, some questions that some of you have in short video segments. So keep an eye out for that. Keep checking back. We'll, uh, well, I'm sure we'll do an announcement when it, when we actually start posting. But yeah, you can look forward to that. And I want to put out a, a personal thank you to all of you who have um, felt it on your heart to help us out with some of the costs of Canary Cry Radio. Um, just as a reminder, we have uh, a donation button on the episode pages there. And uh, if you, in your quiet time of prayer, feel it uh, on your heart to help us out at all um, in any capacity, that button is there for you. Uh, do have to mention that it is not tax uh, deductible because uh, it is considered a gift, a very precious gift that we thank you for. Um, so again, if you feel it on your heart, uh, we welcome you to do that. And next week, we're going to have a special guest, Chris Putnam, the author or co-author of Petros Romanus, The Final Pope is Here. And um, I'm sure that'll be a riveting discussion of some of the stuff that um, Chris Putnam and Tom Horn have been working on. So look for that. Yeah, really interesting stuff regarding some prophecies about the popes and things like that. So make sure to tune in next week for Canary Cry Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Later. Later.